Good morning, Nashville. My name is Braden Gall, and this is the 440 for Monday, November 9th. Chicago Bears came to Nissan Stadium on Sunday and provided the Titans with the perfect elixir to what ailed them over the last two weeks. After literally a dozen personnel moves this week, the Titans got right on both sides of the ball in a fairly easy 24-17 win over Chicago on Sunday in which a couple of late touchdowns made the score look a lot closer than the game actually was. The offense struggled out of the gate for the third straight game and for most of the day as a pretty solid Bears defense made the Titans work for every single yard on Sunday. Tennessee finished with a season-low 11 first downs and a season-low 228 yards of offense. But Ryan Tannehill, Derrick Henry, A.J. Brown, and Jonu Smith each made a few big plays to give the Titans plenty of offense for the win because the awful Bears offense never really challenged the reworked Titans defense. There was plenty of good news on this side of the ball, all of which needs to come with a warning label because it's the Bears. Many of the new pieces contributed. Cornerback Desmond King had a big scoop and score off of a Jeffrey Simmons forced fumble, and Derek Roberson was noticeable coming off the edge, probably more in one game than Vic Beasley was for the entire season. The pass rush got home and made plays, getting three sacks and created a couple of turnovers, even without Jadavian Clowney or Adoree Jackson on the field. The third down defense was the best it's been the entire season, holding Chicago to just two conversions on 15 attempts. And Jeffrey Simmons single-handedly destroyed the Bears' depleted offensive line. I really don't think it's all that crazy to call Simmons the best player on the team. He does his job better than probably any other player on the roster, and that includes guys who are among the best in the NFL at their position. Henry, Brett Kern, Taylor Lewan, Kevin Byard, Ryan Tannehill, and even A.J. Brown. But when it comes to wins over replacement style evaluation at their position, I'm not sure anyone on this roster is doing their job better than Jeffrey Simmons is right now. Again, you've got to clear your throat firmly because it's the Bears. But this defense had to start somewhere. And dominating an inferior opponent right before entering the most critical stretch of football of the year was a welcome and important sign. Every win is a big win in the NFL, but with a short week before a Thursday night showdown for first place in the AFC South against the Indianapolis Colts looming this week, the importance of Sunday's workmanlike performance should not go overlooked. Where to begin for the Tennessee Volunteers? Do you want to talk about the quarterbacks? I guess we could, but it sort of seems like it's a pretty dead horse at this point, and there clearly are no solutions. We could talk about how, for the better part of two seasons, this coaching staff has mishandled the starting quarterback role on the team. We could talk about the play calling. We could talk about the offensive line. We could talk about the third quarter issues. Tennessee's been outscored 61-7 to in the last four games in the third frame. We could talk about the development, or lack thereof, on the defense. However, I'm just not sure how much nuance you really need right now if you're a Tennessee fan. Any of us can sit here and guess as to whether Jeremy Pruitt deserves to be fired or not. And it would be just that, a guess. None of us really truly know if he's the guy or not. Hell, Vols fans were over the moon in love with Philip Fulmer's hand-picked head coach just a month ago. We simply do not know how this team will finish the year or how they're going to look or how they're going to recruit or how much the pandemic has actually impacted this particular roster. So let me tell you what I do know. The issues at quarterback on the field and on the depth chart is on Jeremy Pruitt. The coaches he has hired onto this staff and the inability to make halftime adjustments is on Jeremy Pruitt. 
The development of the defensive front, or lack thereof, is on Jeremy Pruitt. The culture and the attitude and the buy-in of this program is on Jeremy Pruitt. And Jeremy Pruitt is on Philip Fulmer. For better or for worse, Big Orange Nation, this is what you wanted. You wanted Uncle Phil to swoop in with zero experience running an athletic department to save the day by hiring another guy with zero head coaching experience. And this is what you got, all right? Again, we are all just guessing at what this program looks like at the end of the season. And it's irresponsible to make any massive, drastic, swinging conclusions right now. It's important to let the year play out, and let's see where they stand. But after an atrocious second-half showing against a very average Arkansas team with two weeks to prepare, Tennessee is staring directly at 3-7 and seven overall in 2020. An incredibly difficult pandemic year or otherwise, I'm sorry, 3-7 and seven is not progress. It is regression, and that, my friends, is on Jeremy Pruitt. The race for the SEC championship got a little bit clearer this weekend, while the chase for a college football playoff spot got far more interesting. Florida's offensive dismantling of the Georgia defense has cleared a path for the Gators to the SEC championship game and a matchup with what would likely be Alabama. Kyle Trask is the best quarterback in the SEC. He's a Heisman contender, and he's running what I consider to be the best offensive scheme in college football. We don't know yet if it's good enough to beat Alabama, but in a year where offense has been featured, Florida showed the world this Saturday that it can absolutely hang with the best. The path to the East title is pretty clear for Florida. Arkansas, Vanderbilt, Kentucky, Tennessee, and LSU is what's left on the schedule, and Florida will likely be a double-digit favorite in every single one of those games. I have the Gators as the fourth-best team in the country, behind only Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. But wait, you say, behind Clemson, not Notre Dame? How could that be after the Irish won the best game of the year in double overtime on Saturday night, causing me to stay up much later to watch Dave Chappelle? Well, it's simple for me. Notre Dame is really good, and that was a monumental win, maybe perhaps the biggest of Brian Kelly's career in South Bend. And it totally sets up the ACC for a run at two playoff spots with a rematch pending between Notre Dame and Clemson in the ACC championship game. It took an extraordinary, near-perfect performance from the Irish at home in double overtime to beat a Clemson team that didn't even have the best player in the country, Trevor Lawrence, who, by the way, is likely coming back next weekend. Imagine if that game was the other way. Notre Dame, without quarterback Ian Book, on the road against Clemson. Anyone think Notre Dame's winning in double overtime? No. So, while I thoroughly was impressed by Notre Dame in their victory, and it proves that they belong in the top five, I do not think that they are better than Clemson not based on the entirety of the season, which is how the committee evaluates college football teams. No, the win doesn't guarantee Clemson's going to miss the playoff or guarantee that Notre Dame's going to make the playoff. What it does is it increases the competition for that final playoff spot. Notre Dame is now a viable and legitimate contender for that spot. And so if SEC fans expected a second team to breeze into the college football playoff, that just got far more difficult with Notre Dame's win over Clemson. The first full regular season of MLS soccer in Nashville is complete, and it was anything but boring. In the season finale against Orlando City on decision day, the boys in gold scored two gorgeous goals in the final six minutes of the match to steal three points and a road victory from what looked like a sure defeat. It was a thrilling, momentum-building finish to the club's first season that should boost the confidence of the locker room heading into the playoffs. 
But even better than that, the 3-2 win over Orlando moved Nashville SC from 8th place in the Eastern Conference standings to 7th, where they will finish their first season. It means that Inter-Miami is coming to Nashville for the debut of the MLS Cup playoffs in Music City. The historic 7-10 matchup in the Eastern Conference will take place Friday, November 20th, and there is no doubt that supporters should feel like their club can hang with anyone that they face. Nashville SC's debut journey was one hell of an accomplishment, considering the adversity presented to them in 2020. Through a pandemic, a months-long stoppage of play, COVID outbreaks, a rash of injuries, and an influx of new offensive talent, Nashville SC managed to not only make the playoffs in their first season, they did it by setting records defensively, and they get to host a playoff match because of it. It has been a long few years, and so many people have worked so hard to get this club and this city to this point. So after years of contentious stadium debates, two USL seasons, and the insanity of 2020, of course our first year of MLS soccer was capped by the most exciting finish of the year. Now, we all have to sit back and wait, but it's okay for everyone involved, the club, the players, the staff, the front office, the fans, more importantly, to take a deep breath, step back, and appreciate how far this club and this city has come in just its first season of Major League Soccer. Thank you all for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell all your friends. Share the show, please. That's how we keep it going every single morning. My name is Braden Gall. This has been the 440 for Monday, November 9th. The 440 is a production of 440 Media, written and produced by Braden Gall, music by William Tyler.